Hey, pharmacy friends, welcome to Capsule Production Podcast. Before we get started, I want to give a big thanks to Caroline for being our interim photographer and just for giving us moral support and being awesome. So this episode's a little different from the others. Uh, There's no extended release or immediate release format. It's all just basically extended release uh, because the guest isn't technically a pharmacist, but what she does is super awesome and I had a really good time interviewing her. So without any further ado, please welcome Dr. Ashley Brown. Hey guys, welcome to the Capsule Podcast. Uh, today I have a special guest, Dr. Brown, She works at the University of Florida College of Pharmacy. How are you doing today? Hi, good, thank you. All right, so uh, it's a little different from my normal podcast. I usually talk to pharmacists, but I think what you do is really interesting, so I was just hoping you could uh, tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well I primarily do research. Um, my appointment here at UF is 70% research, and my research focuses on viruses, which it's been a really interesting time to be a virologist. I call viruses lately the Kardashians of infectious diseases <laughs> because they're constantly in the media. We've had several outbreaks, the Ebola outbreak of 2014. We've had the Zika outbreak. We've had outbreaks of dengue virus and chikungunya virus in Florida, even local transmission in Florida. Um, and so beyond viruses, we focus on antivirals. So we're looking for drug treatments for to treat some of these viruses. Um, and part of our job is to make antiviral therapy be the best that it can be so it can improve therapeutic outcomes in patients. Um, and to do this, we do uh, studies in which we try to identify the optimal dose as well as dosing interval for agents that will maximize viral suppression and prevent the emergence of resistance. And there are several different medically important viruses we look at in the lab, including influenza, HIV, hepatitis C, dengue, chikungunya, and Zika. I believe that's all we're looking at right now. What's the chikungunya? I have not heard of this one. Oh, you haven't heard of the chikungunya? Well, let me tell you, Lindsay Lohan got chikungunya and made it mainstream when she (laughs) tweeted about it. But um, chikungunya virus is a virus that's transmitted by mosquitoes the 80s Egypti mosquito primarily. Um, it's here, found here in Florida. There was a big outbreak in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. I believe in like 2014, 2015, and it's since spread. And it um, it's an alpha virus and it, um, it causes really bad joint pain. And what makes it so dangerous is you don't die from it. There's not mortality associated with it, yeah. but morbidity is very high. So if you get infected, um, morbidity rates are about 90%. Wow, that's pretty intense. Right. Um, like what kind of symptoms could you expect from that? Really, um, you can get high fever. They called it the traveler's disease because mm-hmm. people would go on cruises and come back with this high fever, um, headache, joint pain, and it turned out to be chikungunya virus. And a lot of people got confused. They said, oh, I have that chicken virus. But <laughs> chikungunya, it's African for that which binds oh. um, because it makes your joints hurt so bad. And a lot of times this joint pain can persist for a very long time. Um, so as far as like uh, popular um, viruses go and such, is there a lot of like uh, fear mongering, I guess would be the word, in the media? Or like do they really just blow stuff out of proportion? Or is it they really that? do. Okay. It, it, it's most obvious with flu. So flu doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, because we're so used to living with it. Yeah. But really, flu will cause 36 million deaths in the United States a year. That's Ebola a caused death in, I believe, one person in the United States. <laughs> and you saw it everywhere on all the magazines and the media for for months and months and months. I mean, Ebola is bad news, but yeah. you see a lot more morbidity mortality with flu. Yeah, especially this season. I, I 
kept reading about deaths and how high the prevalence was of the flu this year, but... Yes. So a lot of people think the flu, because, again, I think it's because we're just used to hearing about it and dealing with it, and there's a vaccine. The last couple of years, the vaccine's been pretty ineffective. So they're working on making, there's lots of research being done to make a universal vaccine to help mm-hmm. boost efficacy rates. But, you know, the past couple of years, it's been a little bit off the mark. And so um, an antiviral therapy isn't all that great. And there's a couple new drugs coming out, but a lot of pharmaceutical companies um, in my opinion, I should say, uh, aren't really focusing on viruses that are self-limiting and acute, meaning the, the short-term ones that come and go by themselves. Yeah. More, um, you t- We've seen a lot of research done in some of the chronic viruses where you need to take pills for much longer. Um, so can you speak a little bit about the um, influenza, like the flu shot? Because you said it's not effective. So just for the folks that really don't know how they work or are worried about getting the flu from the flu shot, can you go into that a little bit? Oh, sure. So it is effective. Um, so efficacy rates, you know, they're typically about 60%, meaning I mean, you still can get the flu if you get the flu shot. Um, however, they have there's lots of data out there showing that even if you get the flu, your symptoms could be decreased. Um, so you could prevent against hospitalization or more complicated influenza. So it is important to get the flu shot to everybody. I get it. I get my kids get it every year. So, um, uh, but you don't get the flu from the flu shot. The flu shot is inactive. It's made with a killed virus. And so there's no possible way to get the flu from the flu shot. Okay, that's the question I get from my family every single year when flu shots come up. I get my flu shot every year and they're... Complain to me, oh, I'm going to get sick, you're going to get sick, you know, people are dying from the flu, why'd you put that in your body? And it's, it's hard to explain to people that aren't in the field, so. Right, right. I just, my mom used to say the same thing. She's like, oh, I'm going to get, I got the flu shot, now I have the flu. And that can't happen, especially because it takes two weeks to develop an immune response to the flu shot. So if you wait too long in the season and you get your flu shot and then you get infected by the flu within that two-week window, you're still going to get the flu, but um, it, you, you didn't get it from the shot. Um, so you said there's a they're working on a universal vaccine. Like how would that work? Um, I haven't read too much into it. I just see that they're trying to make a, a vaccine um, that elicits an immune response. So it, regardless of what type of virus is out there, it should be protective. There's a lot of um, focus on that right now, and I've seen some things in the mainstream media about, um, uh, I guess, strides being made in that aspect but I, I haven't followed it that closely because I like to focus more on the antivirals <laughs> I got you um, so what's up with Zika <laughs> I was talking to a, a classmate of mine Jeff and I mentioned I was doing this interview with you and he's like ask her about Zika because that was such a big thing for such a long time I mean is that still around is that still prevalent what's yeah so that's another one that you know it's been around for a while and I believe the first case that we always report and we do manuscripts was in 1947, but it recently got attention in the 2015 outbreak when it moved to the Western Hemisphere and, and spread. Um, as to whether it's still around, uh, I believe it is. We'll have to see. With There's a constant surveillance going on, but it was this big media hype, and then it's kind of died down. Um, in my lab, we are looking at identifying therapies, effective therapies against Zika virus, because there aren't any. There is nothing you can do to treat some of these, particularly these mosquito-transmitted viruses, dengue, chikungunya, Zika, West Nile, no antiviral therapies available. So 
we haven't seen too many developments. So we're using a repurposing strategy where we're taking drugs that are already approved mm-hmm. for other to treat other viruses and seeing if they work against Zika. And so that's one of our big missions right now in the lab is we're trying these different vi- um, antivirals that have been shown to exhibit broad spectrum activity against a wide variety of viruses and see if they work against Zika. And we have some hits. Um, and so what we're trying to do right now is see if we can if um, if dosage regimens that are being used clinically are effective against the virus. Because, sure, a virus, an antiviral could be effective against a virus at a super high concentration that you can never give to a person. That's not really great. It's not feasible. <laughs> no. Um, so what would they do in the meantime? I mean, do they just offer supportive care? Or, I mean, is right. there... All, all therapy is just strictly supportive and trying to treat the symptoms. So I, uh, I had read a paper, an article about um, how they're using certain older drugs to just ramp up your immune system to see if your body can fight it naturally. I don't know if you had any experience with that or looked into that at all. Okay. No, in our in our studies, we always say we're not looking for viral uh, inhibition or viral suppression to go down to zero, like we're below our assay limit of detection. You just need to drop viral burden enough so the immune system can take over. So that we, we don't measure our success by actually having a, a zero viral titer. You, you can have some there and we still think it might be effective clinically. I got you. So how many, like on a given month, how many projects are you working on? Oh goodness. We have quite a few going on. (laughs) We're, we're, we're doing some flu research right now. Um, we're constantly looking at, uh, antivirals against chikungunya, still dengue and Zika. And then I have a big hep C grant, hepatitis C grant that's still, that's going on. Um, are you looking at just uh, treatments or um, prophylaxis? Because I know they have that uh, cure out now, right? For, for hep C. Yeah. So the new treatments that are out, and that's, it was really exciting. Um, I kind of started hep C research. So my program, my research program is, is designed. So we're always looking at um, pharmacodynamics of drugs. So identifying pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic interactions. So that's a big umbrella, which is nice because then you can always apply different viruses under that umbrella. So you can always kind of mold your program to be with with viruses that are relevant right now mm-hmm. because the relevant viruses tend to get funded. Um, so at the beginning of around 2011, 2012 is when I started to do the hepatitis C research. And then in 2013, there's just this boom of new drugs that came on, on board. And so we're looking at some of those drugs. So um, in the lab, we have Cefospivir and Lidipasphere, which is, when you put them together, that's Harvoni, okay, yeah, the that's, treatment out there. That's one I've seen commercials for on TV. Right, so. It's on TV. Yeah, it's, uh, they make, it makes it look lovely, right? It's yeah, like they're playing commercial. tennis, and it looks, like yeah, <laughs> looks like a good experience. Yeah, It looks like a good experience. Yeah, so they have really good 90 95% real-world cure rates. Um, and so we're looking at, we're, we're looking at that, and also um, seeing if you can combine other drugs. Really, the project is trying to find an optimal combination regimen in order to um, maximize viral suppression quickly and also prevent resistance emergence, because that's a big problem. Um, are you finding any kind of uh, resistance building up towards like Harvoni or any other combinations? Um, we see we see to Lidiposphere, so the NS5A portion, uh, anti-NS5A drug in that combination. We don't see any so far to Cefospivir, and that's pretty much what mimics the clinical situation. Um, you don't get a lot of resistance to Cefospivir. Um, they have pulled out some mutants clinically, mm-hmm. but they're very few and far between. That's promising. <laughs> yes, yes. So that, I mean, that's 
probably speaks to the success of this this regimen. I think at the price down, I um, over the summer I worked uh, at a, a hippie, which is like the introductory hospital pharmacy rotation, and uh, I was at a hepatitis C clinic, and they're saying the patients are like liable for like ninety thousand dollars or something like that, and if they miss like two doses, they got to start from scratch, and it's pretty insane. So I'm kind of hoping they get the price down a little bit and make yes. it a little more available to patients. I haven't followed it. When it first came out, again, that's part of viruses being in the mainstream media, you heard about this regimen all the time because it was $1,100 per pill, and you yeah. take one pill per day for you know 12 weeks at the time, or if you have other um, indications or like cirrhosis, you have to go for 24 weeks. So the regimen could be quite pricey, but... It's cheaper than a liver transplant. That's yeah, that's very true. <laughs> um, so, do you see any other uh, viruses coming up that maybe the media hasn't caught on to, or that uh, that just kind of keeps you up at night, and you're like, oh, we need to start figuring something <laughs> out for this? Well, we're still following these mosquito transmitted ones, um, and I, I do follow the news. So, there was a big yellow fever outbreak in um, Brazil. Mm. There's a vaccine for yellow fever, but a lot of people weren't getting it. So, they're yellow fever has moved into the cities and it's been causing a big problem so we're gonna start um, to look at seeing if some of these therapies that we're looking at could be effective against yellow fever as well um, and other than that we're still just focusing on the the arboviruses um, and then someday it would be nice to start using a modified system that that exists or is in development to start looking at maybe some Ebola treatments in in a, a biosafety level two environment. Uh, right now, those are what um, BSL four. Four, okay. yes, and there's only a few BSL four labs in the country, and so we don't. Then that's very expensive and dangerous. So, <laughs> if you could find ways to look at high um, containment viruses in a in a lesser, you know, lesser biosafety level situation that's yeah. more ideal and cost effective <laughs> so um so that's actually a great segue um so what kind of like safety are you in a bsl two or three two two okay so i mean you're working with some like pretty serious stuff do you get freaked out at all or i mean do you have do you take a lot of precautions or i mean what, what kind of stuff do you have to do yeah we take a lot of safety precautions so we always wear um all of our protective personal equipment lab coats uh, gloves um, the mosquito transmitted viruses, you know, are more. We don't have mosquitoes in the in the lab or yeah. the building, so that helps. And we, we limit our use of. We don't use needles in my lab at all, and um, you know, try to avoid glassware and sharps, and you know, take the, pro the necessary precautions. Use aerosol tight um, rotors when we centrifuge. Use biological safety cabinets that filter the air. So we've, we're pretty well uh, equipped and. We have practiced good safety measures, so. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yes. I worked on a couple of labs, and I, I think the first couple of days, it's just kind of humbling. Like, you're, I was pretty freaked out when I, I worked with some bacteria, like MRSA. I mean, it's oh, not, yeah. not that terrible. Stuff you but, find on the counter. Yeah, <laughs> but then when they put it in front of you, you're like, oh, this is MRSA. I'm like, oh, I don't want to touch it. Um, well, that's probably good practice. Yeah. At least not with an ungloved finger. <laughs> Very true. Um, so how long have you been um, working in this particular uh, field? In the field, I've been in this field since 2008. You're going to ask me to date myself? No. Yes, no, no. 2008. So I'm coming up on 10 years. Okay. Um, and we've I've been with UF since 2011. 
I got you. Did you uh, do your degree at UF, or where, where did you get your degree at? I got my degree in upstate New York through okay. the University at Albany, the School of Public Health, which was a really interesting place to work because the, the lab I was in was part of the New York State Department of Health. So you got to see how government labs were run. Um, I did my my PhD focusing on West Nile. Oh, wow. And looking at um, pathogenesis and a mouse model of, of West Nile. Um, so now going back to the mosquito transmitted viruses is kind of natural for me since that's kind of what I started with. I think that was another one of those like publicized, West, I remember hearing the news, West Nile virus, watch out. So. 1999 yeah. to like 2003 <laughs> about um, how many did that even really impact that many people? I mean, or was that more of just a hype? It it does it it did. Um, a lot of people are probably asymptomatic. Um, only about twenty percent will show sim- signs or symptoms, and um, less than like maybe one percent will get the severe neurological disease. What in upstate New York, the mosquito vector that transmits mainly transmits West Nile is called the Culex mosquito, and it tends to preferentially feed on birds. So it really did a number on the crow population because West Nile just rampantly replicates through the crow and, and has wow. high mortality. I think they left that out of the news. Um, yeah, it's kind of, I guess, interesting that you don't really think about how the virus is going to affect the ecosystem or animals. You're just kind of thinking about humans. So interesting. Um, You're clearly in a medical field, not the veterinary field. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, <laughs> I definitely. I'm worried about humans. Um, Okay, so you've been in the field for uh, 10 years, so I, you do a little bit of teaching, actually. That's how I, I won't say discovered you, but how I know about your um, work. Just you taught a few of our lectures of virology. So um, do you like teach, the teaching aspect, or is that just kind of an add-on to your I really right like the teaching. I, I, um, I'm a part of the College of Medicine, and you know we're at a satellite campus, and so we don't have a lot of opportunities to teach being here in Lake Nona. And so when the pharmacy school reached out to me, to give some lectures, I was more than happy to do it, and I really, I really like it. It gives me a t- chance to really, you know, break down viruses and think about them in in more of the the um, basic biology that I don't really ever think about. And it's nice to, I do think about it, but on a, on a different level. Yeah, I guess I should getting say. back to your roots or something. Getting back to the roots and like really breaking it down to explain it to to people that might have never been exposed to to basic virology. Um, so you also have a family. How do you balance that? Because that's got to be tough between teaching, I mean, running a million projects in this lab and then going home, you know, spending time with your family. Yes, it is. It, I have um, I have a twin, a boy-girl twins that are five, and then another daughter that's 18 months younger that's going to be four this summer. So I've oh my goodness. three toddlers <laughs> running around that are all in daycare. And so it's kind of a big joke because really they're little Petri dishes of disease. And so I really I say that you know the infectious disease research is really taking place in my house because <laughs> <laughs> we're passing around things and probably creating some ridiculous strain of some bug because they take every opportunity to cough in my mouth and <laughs> face and eyes and so um, it is it that's what's really nice about academic research in a way is I have a really great team in the lab that does the lab work and. I do more of the grant writing and manuscript writing and report writing and I can do that anywhere so it it lends for a more of a flexible schedule in the academic world Um, that's good especially like you said you have the family Um, do you they're constantly sick (laughs) yes my my sister has four little girls and that's every time I go over there yeah one person gets it and it just spreads throughout the whole house you have to go over at your own risk and it's kind of a hazard for 
so being a microbiologist has its challenges living with three toddlers because <laughs> children, for lack of a better word, are kind of gross. They yeah. don't care about height. Well, germs, I guess, or hygiene for that matter. I make them wash their hands all the time. But the the best example I remember thinking of that really, really terrified me to my core was we were driving up to Tennessee where my in-laws live. And so my kids like to stop constantly to go to the bathroom. I think they just get bored. So I've been in every public restroom from here up 75 to Nashville. (laughs) And I We've seen some really sketchy places. Yeah. And so I remember getting back in the car and my daughter was like, Mommy, I'm talking on the phone. She took her shoe off and put it up to her face. And I remember thinking, oh, like, no. I've seen the suspect liquids you've walked through. <laughs> that is, we're really giving that hygiene hypothesis a run for its money. So we'll see. Building up the immune system. Building up the immune system. Maybe she won't have allergies. <laughs> Um, does it freak you out when they're in daycare? Because I know a lot of stuff spreads through daycare. Oh, gosh. And they put little notices up to tell you kind of, you know, what's been spreading through. And I look at it and I'm like, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of a menu as to what might enter my house next. So it they're going to get it sometime. So I figure well, they might as well get it now. And then maybe by the time they go to school, they'll be primed and healthy and be one of those kids with perfect attendance. Ready That's my go. pie in the sky dream. <laughs> yes, Probably crossed. not going to happen. But <laughs> um, so, what do you do outside of uh, academia? Do you like go bike riding? You into sports, or how do you balance your you know work stress and family stress <laughs> with just you know you time? Right. Oh yeah, my time is pretty uh, limited with the, the kids, but I do run a lot. So okay. I'm an avid runner. I had been since I was a teenager. Um, I've done a couple marathons back in the day before before children and wow. so it really helps with the stress level and this type of weather is really beautiful to run in so running in upstate New York was pretty much hellish for <laughs> nine months out of the year in the winter and so I'm really embracing the Florida weather pretty soon it's going to get hot but yeah, a, little, a little too hot but... too hot to run when the sun's out I feel like <laughs> a vampire when I'm running <laughs> um so you, do you uh, have any pharmacy students or do you involve any pharmacists in your work or I do. Um, right now, uh, Evelyn Franco, who's uh, about to graduate. Is she in your year? I'm third year. You're, oh, you're third year. Yeah. So she's a fourth year. Um, she is going to graduate with her PharmD, and then she's going to join my lab. She has been accepted into the PhD program. Oh, awesome. Okay. Yeah, so she'll be my first graduate student, and I have joint appointments in the College of Pharmacy. I also serve as a preceptor for a rotation through the... I think it's the APPE. Yep. Oh, God, I got that right. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've had a couple of students rotate through that. Um, and then I've served as a faculty advisor for the SPMC for some research projects. And I really like interacting with the students. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, so do you have, like, a regimen that you have them go through? Or, like, uh, do you have – or do you just kind of, like, um, wing it, just, you know, what you're going to make them do? Or, like, certain lab work you have them do? Or do you have them just do a lot of busy work? Do you, think I, do you think I just push them in there and say sink or swim? Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> we go through an extensive training process. So that's yeah. probably the hardest part is because – um, especially for rotation students, um, you have to do a whole bunch. We require a whole bunch of online training before you can even get in there and reading of safety manuals and you know real fun stuff. But <laughs> safety is very important Indeed. in our field, and I always say, I just said it out there, safety never hurt anybody. That's right. So we uh, make our safety officer happy by promoting good lab safety, and then usually we'll talk. I'll talk to the student and see what they're interested in and try to tailor a project towards their interests, um, with the idea that. 
you know, we are an antivirus lab that deals with viruses and drugs. And so as long as they're interested in viruses and drugs, then we can, the find, world's your oyster. Can find something for them. Um, so do you guys do any like modeling on the computer? Because I know that's big in the lab I was working in for a while. Yes. Oh, yeah. So we, I collaborate with Jorgen Belita upstairs a okay. lot. And um, my institute director, George Trusano, is a mathematical modeler as well. And so I use that a, a lot. Um, we generate the data in the lab and then we'll give the data to the modelers and then they'll make a model that hopefully describes the data. A good model will describe <laughs> the data. And then we use the models to simulate and predict how different dosage regimens may, um, may work in people. Uh, just for a little background for people that don't know what modeling is, um, could you go into that just a, like a brief explanation? Oh, yeah, because I, really <laughs> I know only the 30,000 foot view because yeah. it's pretty much a black box to me. So modeling is just using different types of equations, usually differential equations. Some people will do, um, like Dr. Belito upstairs will calls it mechanism-based modeling. Um, so he tries to make equations um, based on uh, some of the viral processes. Um, some of them are processes are empirically driven because we don't measure everything. So for example, every step of the viral replication cycle could be a separate equation. And then um, uh, I, from what I understand, then you just use specialized software and hopefully your model will predict an outcome that's similar to your experimentally derived data. Okay, yeah, it clears it up. So I, it took me a while to figure out what they were doing up there when they talked about modeling. I'm like, there's no one taking pictures of me. I know, right? That's what I was saying. Modeling? Modeling. <laughs> um, so that's pretty cool. I mean, that Dr. Belita told me that's like the future of pharmacy. Is just Oh, yes. Yeah. It can show you so... It, it, it can give you so much more bang for your buck and it gives you so much more information than just looking at your your experimentally derived data um, a lot of people will criticize and say oh it's just numbers it's just hand waving but then what we'll go do is uh, we just have a paper that we submitted to one of the um, <clears throat> scientific journals where we had just data derived in the lab we gave it to Dr. Belita's lab. They made the model. It described the data. And then I had him run simulations to predict an outcome associated with one of the therapeutic regimens. We went in the lab and did the same experiment. Mm -hmm. And the model completely prospectively predicted our, our results. Really? Yeah. That's Which is exciting. really exciting. Yeah. So a lot of times I think in the I don't know, academic or in the office, like you'll get one answer. And then in the real world, it's something completely different. Yeah. It still could be something completely I mean, in the oh. real world, you never know. But um, the fact that the computer could tell us this is what you're going to get, and we actually do the experiment, which is a biologically active experiment, and get nearly identical results is pretty impressive to me. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, so switching gears just a little bit, do you, uh, is there a particular project that you're really proud of or a paper you wrote that you're just like, oh, you want gosh. everyone to know about? I'm in a, I'm in a, I've been garnering all this data for years, and now I'm just like, pushing out papers like it's my well it actually is my job <laughs> but I'm doing it like it's my job um so we've got quite a few out in the past couple of, just the past couple of months that I'm, I'm really proud of um we we published on some of the Zika work we've been doing um and looking at some combination regimens that are predicted to be effective in people um, so that one was published in Antimicrobial Agents in Chemotherapy, and we have a follow-up to it now that I just submitted. 
Um, I've had quite a few hepatitis C papers come out and that need and some others that have to be written. Um, we just published some work or we submitted some work to be published for dengue virus, looking at a plausible combination regimen using some repurposed agents. Um, and we're starting to work with Dr. Bjorl upstairs and taking some of our mathematical, or not mathematical models, our experimental models and applying them to try to optimize cancer chemotherapy. And That's interesting. she's applying her mathematical models and some of her protein interactions that she's measuring in order to, you know, do uh, prediction and translation from the ex experimentally derived data to the clinic. So I'm proud of all of it. That's awesome. <laughs> it's good to be proud of. Um, I didn't know there was overlap between like the cancer research and like viral research. Like how how does what entails with that? Um, so uh, when she, when Dr. Bureau first started, I went and sought her out because I thought, well, this would be a great system. I developed this system for hepatitis C virus. Um, it would be a great system that you could apply to cancer therapy. And a lot of the cell lines I work with to grow my viruses are cancer-derived cells. Oh. And so I'm always looking for drugs that are killing the virus, not the cell. She's looking for drugs that are killing the cell. So uh, we... Our, the system is quite amenable to to answering those questions as well. And she her lab just got a paper published in, in a journal look, using one of the systems that we developed in our lab to try to optimize a combination regimen. That's so cool. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. So it's always good to network then. It's a good piece of advice. That's right. Collaboration yes. is key. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so what's next on the horizon? Are you going to continue working here in teaching? Or do you have, I don't know if you have any interest in like industry or what... Yeah, so I've been, you know, with UF, I'm coming up on seven years, so I really like it, and I'm I'm getting gearing up for grant writing again. So um, there, I had a long term. I have a long term hepatitis C grant, which is almost in the final two years. So I'm going to start writing some more um, grants to the National Institute of Health, submitting in June, June fifth. Oh, okay. So it's coming up. It's coming. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So I'm going to still be focusing on, you know, looking at trying to optimize viral regimens against some of these neglected diseases and um, some of the other one, common ones like influenza. And uh, I'd love to continue to teach and uh, have some more opportunities to teach more and interact with students more because it's really, it's really exciting, I think, to, to teach the young, enthusiastic students that come through here. Well, I enjoy that because, yeah, I really enjoyed your lectures, and, it, yeah, it was very interesting, so. Thank you. I hope you like my cartoons, too. <laughs> I do, indeed. <laughs> All right, uh, so I guess that wraps up the podcast, right, in, like, 30 minutes now, so. Oh, wow. Time flies. It does. Time. Fun times. All right, so thank you so much for being on here, and hopefully I will see you again in the future and have you on. Oh, thank you so much. This was so fun. As always, big thanks to my guest, Dr. Ashley Brown. I had a really good time interviewing her. Super fun. Um, also, I want to thank my team at Capsule Productions, Jeff, Maher, and Amy. You guys are awesome, as usual. If any listeners out there want to hear from anyone specific or want me to cover any specific topics, definitely feel free to hit us up uh, at Facebook. We're at Capsule Production, or you can email us at uh, CapsuleProduction1 at gmail.com, and I'll try and make it happen for you. And lastly, I just want to thank Sephiros for providing the music. This song is called Celestial, and you can find it at freestockmusic.com. Thanks, guys. I'll see you next week.